0: This is the Scott Bradley Show Podcast.
1: We have been waiting for some time now to see what the report, there was a report that was commissioned to be done to find out about the First Ontario Centre. What should be done with the First Ontario Centre? Should we tweak it a little bit? Should we rebuild the whole thing and redo the whole I mean make it back into a brand new facility what should happen with it well we now have some answers to that because online at the city's website today the report 250 I think something pages is now up there uh, it is now available for people to take a look at if you were so inclined the man who is behind this who helped facilitate this and make it happen and has really been the driving force behind looking into this is Jasper Kajewski who joins me now Jasper thanks for doing this tonight. That's a
0: pleasure good talking to you
1: Scott. Uh, this now a couple of things before we get to the nuts and bolts of everything that's in this report. This is, according to the report, the tenth busiest arena in Canada. That's that seems like a pretty good thing, isn't it? Or should we be doing better than that? Do you think?
0: No, it's a, it's an accurate reflection of where it is. It, it's an arena that sits in what is the tenth largest city in the country, and if you take the You know, populations of Brampton and Mississauga, say, if you were to tack them on to a larger GTA metropolitan number, we become the eighth largest city in the country.
1: So So it fits. It fits. It's a reasonable number. It's a good number. It also says, and this was somewhat to my surprise, the very first thing in the top of the executive summary, overall, I'm reading from it now, overall, First Ontario Centre appears to be in good condition, having been well maintained over the past 30 years. Again, that was somewhat to my surprise because we've heard a lot of things over the while that things have been falling apart and things aren't up to snuff. It, was that surprising to you or was that what you expected?
0: No, it's not surprising at all because you're talking about two different things. If you have, for example, electrical systems or things that are in place, things that have to be replaced on a regular basis, but for example, the, the steel-reinforced concrete columns that hold up, hold up a cable tension steel truss roofing system, aren't designed to have to be replaced on a regular basis if they're done properly. And the structural bones of this building are really solid. But once you're up inside of it with all of the different components, the things that are being ground on a daily basis and worn and have to be, you know, people have talked about escalators, people are talking about other things that, you know, need, need replacing. And it's tired. That I think has been reflected in the existing building assessment portion of the report.
1: Yes, and, and it absolutely did. I, I can't remember exactly where it was in there, but one of the things it says is, if you look at this building, it looks well worn. Appearances wise, aesthetically, it yeah. looks like a well worn building.
0: Yeah, that's through the existing building assessment, other parts of the report. Yeah.
1: So there are uh, there are really three options that are at play here when you read this report. The the one option. Is that we do nothing. Uh, that that I guess that's the, always the fallback position that we just continue on as we are. But the other two that are yeah. really talked about in this report, one mm-hmm. of them says there is a $68 million option and there is a $252 million option. That's right. In brief, Jasper, explain. First of all, let's go through the, the, the cheaper one, the less expensive one, the $68 million option. What would that mean? What would the building look like when we were done? How would it be different from where it is now?
0: You wouldn't see significant changes from the outside of the building except for some minor um, upper-level work in, the, in terms of possibly because you're starting to look at the addition of a partial concourse on the upper level, a partial, which ultimately becomes a full concourse at the $252 million build-up. But essentially from the exterior of the building, it would look pretty much the same. In the interior, it's a very significant change to the lower bowl The addition of new boxes on about a third of the total main concourse on the south side, reorienting. In fact, what's recommended is reorientation of the um, uh, players' benches and and uh, penalty box, so that everything now becomes a major north end um, event level renovation and a new concourse on the south side to deal with the, which is already internal to Jackson Square, using existing space. On the beginning of what ultimately could be the build out to 252.
1: Okay, let, so sorry, let me just stop you for one sec, just so I'm clear. Does that mean that the rink itself would be pivoted 90 degrees? No. Okay.
0: Just where, no, no, no. Just if you put your players' benches and your press, and I'm sorry, the, uh, the dressing rooms and other uh, new amenities on the north side of the building. Then it makes then that it only orients which side you're sitting on. Okay, no
1: all place. right. So just flip it around, basically flip the sides of the of the bench to the other side of the rink and put all the dressing rooms and everything back in there.
0: That's right, because it'd all be brand new, built to 21st century standards.
1: Okay, and so that there's where we start. So we see that that's the first thing you would notice when you walk in that the, that it would actually the rink would look flipped in that way. What and else what would we you're see? You're also
0: going to be seeing new seats in the lower bowl. You're going to be seeing new. Um, exits punched out on the south side which are exiting a new concourse down at what is essentially street level and so they're going to be significant interior changes the upper bowl remains essentially the same although the access to it changes on the south side because of the new private boxes and there's no upper level expansion in terms of a new concourse going all the way around and new party level suites at the very top of the building which are contemplated in the full build out in option two.
1: So with the less expensive option then, uh, would there be, if, if I had showed up if I go to the game tomorrow night, the Bulldogs playoff game, and then in four years if they were to do this, or three years or whatever, and it was updated on a scale of one to ten, how much difference, would ten being the most, how much difference would I actually notice when I walk into the arena?
0: Well, on the parts that have been the subject of the renovation, it's a full ten because you're up to a state of the art standard okay. for the portion of space that's been renovated.
1: Okay. Now if we were to not do sixty eight million but we were to jump to the uh, the Rolls Royce version okay. and go two hundred and fifty two million, what would we see from First Ontario Center, assuming it was still called that, when that project was finished?
0: Now the private suites are going all the way around the full perimeter of the where the current main concourse is. They're not just on the south side. The entire upper bowl is being reconfigured, and the new concourse is accessed through the new exits that are built into the new upper into the upper bowl. You see a complete upper level party deck that currently is where that brick is above the top level of seats in the upper bowl. There's a complete new press box alignment, and at that point, you see the full build out of the building.
1: I mean, it, and the, sir, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry,
0: and the entire exterior is completely new. The entire facade is, and now you have a completely different looking building from the outside.
1: Yeah, and there are, for people who go to the website and people who go to the city's website, and I'll put a link to it on my Scott Radley Show Facebook page after we're done here, you can see the artist's conception of what the building would look like. It is a yeah. dramatically different looking outside and inside, quite frankly. Now, yeah. if we were to go with the big one, though, the, the underlying, I think, idea of this would be, this is... This is for an NHL team, essentially. I think that's that I'm would be...
0: If I, if I may, and I don't mean to... Yes, no, please. ...about your question. If, if ever even the letters NHL are <laughs> even going to be mentioned in this conversation, no, it's not... I don't, it's not a, I don't laugh at it. I don't scoff at it. It's a completely separate conversation about a topic that I really do believe deserves a real investigation in a way that I don't think has ever happened in Hamilton in terms of understanding the history of this subject and all of the nuances of it, but the bottom line as it... Re- so I hope that that takes place, because I think that gives the city a perspective into its own soul and its own concept of what it means to be ambitious. And to understand the fu- the ultimate future of Hamilton, I think you really have to understand those the question around those three letters. That could be the subject of you know a, tr- a treatment for a play that, in fact, I've written, and a Jeopardy question that we could get into. But with regards to this project, Scott... This isn't about going to get an NHL team. This is about the, the economic development of the 10th largest city in the country and the whole concept of whether there's going to be a sports, entertainment, hospitality, and convention infrastructure that's appropriate to a city of this
1: size. I was going to ask you that because what would be then, this will be the obvious question, Jasper, that I think many, many people will have when they consider this. What's the benefit of of going all in to the big $252 million renovation if there are no assurances of an NHL team, which, by the way, the report is quick to point out, there are no assurances of an NHL team right now. What would be the upside to us doing this right now?
0: The upside of doing it would be that you now can fully accommodate the highest level of professional sports and entertainment that can be had internationally in a facility in the heart of your downtown core. That's the upside of it. The risk of it is clearly that you're going to make the argument, and I think it makes absolute sense for people to make the argument, that in the absence of the major league tenant, can you make an economic case for the, two, two, the full $252 million buildout? That's an absolutely fair question, which is part of what you need to answer in further homework that needs to be done to ultimately bring this to fruition. And by no means would I ever stand in front of the city of Hamilton and say, as of on April the 5th, I'm recommending that you commit right now $252 million of municipal taxpayers' money. Simple as that. How far do you think that's going to get?
1: I don't think you would get the full sentence out of your mouth. No, no. And and in the report, report, uh, staff has actually recommended doing neither at this time. They're they, they are recommending neither the 68 or the 252. Is that a surprise to you that they've taken that position?
0: Absolutely not, because I'm not even asking them on April the 5th to do that. What I'm saying needs to be done as part of next steps is a point in between just saying the public is spending all of the money, because my entire premise on this is this will never happen if you do not have a comprehensive private-public partnership, which is ultimately significantly privately financed but it has to be publicly facilitated and coordinated because it's a publicly owned building the premise that the private sector is going to do a hundred percent of this and the city's going to have no skin in the game at all isn't going to happen but at the same time turning to the pro- public sector and saying you take a hundred percent of this just fund even the you know the 252 obviously isn't going to happen in the absence of any further conversation with regards to the 68, not that I'm suggesting I'm recommending that as the, you know, tomorrow because there's still to be further work and consideration, but the 68 accommodates the current tenant and not enough people talk about Michael Andelauer in this process. Although let me be clear, I don't speak for him and he will very eloquently and appropriately speak for himself, but, there has to be a consideration of what the needs are for the existing tenant because the entire premise of this project is that it has to be financially sustainable without a National Hockey League tenant.
1: Right, right, That's absolutely. That's
0: the premise of it. So if you are committed to that premise and then you are studying your various options and what you can do to get there and what each gets you, now you're getting closer to being able to see whether you can get financed at a minimum, the, the, the option one that's outlined
1: there. Jasper, we just have a minute or so left here. Unfortunately, yeah. it's it's very I mean, I know it's very quick and it's unfortunate. Um, here's the thing. In in the absence of either of the two proposals, the big numbers that are thrown out there, the other thing that it talks about, as I said right off the top, is this let's just keep paying the piecemeal of smaller amounts to keep the thing going and keep it mm-hmm. in, in place. Here's the yeah. question I have, though, as I look through the report, and I looked through the report today for a while. According to this report, the city paid $56,000, and this is just one example, $56,000 last year, of 2015, pardon me, I think it was, right. for escalator and elevator compliance. Now, we still have, for a number of years now, one of the main escalators in that facility that transports people to the lower bowl that has not worked. It hasn't worked for a long, long time, certainly as long as 2015. Right. Does right. that suggest then, leaving aside $68 million or leaving aside $252 million, that what we're doing right now to maintain this place as it stands is insufficient because even the stuff that we're sending money to the place for, things aren't necessarily getting fixed. I'm not going
0: to. I'm hesitating to get into a discussion
1: of things that might be better asked of the people
0: that manage the building currently, who I think are doing the best under the circumstances that are handed to them in terms of Spectra, which operates as core. You know, to me, I would I would say to you that I think our report has accurately set out what the existing building condition is. I'm I focus more not on being critical of where the building is. I want to know what the building is capable of. My focus in the work that I do is looking ahead to what can you do with the bones of this building Mm. and and what can an ambitious city do in a way that is financially sustainable, fiscally attractive, private sector driven, public sector facilitated and coordinated. And I think there's a way to do that with this building as well as the totality of, of Hamilton Sports Entertainment hospitality, and convention infrastructure requirements. Yeah. That's what I think this is about.
1: And, and I will say, and we don't have time to get into it right now, although this will be brought up at council at uh, G- uh, General Issues Committee, I believe, on April the 5th and yeah. will be talked about in length. This also involves, or at least in the report it talks about, a convention center yeah. Uh, yeah. across the street on the Sir John A. McDonald's site and possibly a hotel there. So th- this is part of a a larger project a larger vision that's, for that area exactly, of the downtown
0: that's exactly right and i'd like to i hope i have just enough time because go ahead we did raise the convention center concept to say that we were very deliberate in the report to say that we've uh, it's clearly very important because that's what this is all about that whole sports entertainment convention and hospitality infrastructure requirement and in terms of the sir johnny mcdonald site everything that you're going to hear about that you're going to hear more about that in terms of steps forward is premised on a respect for the fact that the the district school board owns that site. That site is not yet available. It has, I'm sorry, not yet even the school hasn't closed yet. Scheduled in 2019, it is not available for sale. It is completely within the mandate of the school board to do as they please with their own site, and everything that can be dis- that is discussed about that is done within the concept of respect for their process in terms of doing what they deem ultimately appropriate with lands that they own. That having been said, clearly there's an identification that from a pure planning perspective, if your arena project is in the current site, the obvious space for the sports entertainment precinct, hospitality and convention precinct, is that site. Because when you look at the arena where it is, you look at where Sir Johnny McDonald is, and ultimately in the master development play that I think is required to get all parts of this deal done when you look at the potential of waterfront i'm not talking about pier seven and eight that's going to market the more diff you know the more long-term vision of development there is if you can properly develop your arena properly develop the convention and hotel complex and have a complete waterfront development inclusive of the cn rail yards knowing that the pier 8 project is now going ahead that's already in the bank that's going to market great i couldn't be happier if all those component pieces come together, then you have the full build-out of your urban, core, vibrant, potential, ambitious city plan. Then all of Hamilton's dreams can come true. That, that is not a pipe dream. That is actually a strategic possibility if you proactively do the things that are necessary to make it happen. That's what this is
1: about. Jasper Kajaski, I appreciate the time as always, Jasper. Thanks for doing this, and I'm sure we'll be hearing much, much, much more from you in the days ahead around this. Thanks for the time.
0: Look forward to it.
1: Nice chatting with you. That is is a tip of the, a taste, an appetizer for what this discussion is going to be. Because while I do not believe for a moment, for one moment, that when this comes in front of city council, who have just, by the way, been through a 14-hour LRT meeting yesterday, I only raise that because we're talking about a billion dollars going there and questions about financing going into that and everything else. I don't expect that when this thing comes in front of council that anybody is going to be saying, yeah, let's spend $252 million on this one. There is not a counselor around that table, I don't believe, who's going to be arguing for that. But it certainly is an interesting discussion. To maybe find down the road, to maybe throw out there in the minuscule chance that something were to happen, maybe there's something in the middle of this i i I don't know but it's certainly we're going to hear a lot more about this you're listening to the scott radley show weeknights from seven to nine
0: on am 900 chml
1: we've all been in high school we've all had teachers and we've all just assumed i think that our teachers teach and then they go home and do whatever it is the teachers do when they go home but imagine if you have a teacher that you work with every day and suddenly you go online And you discover that this teacher has a secret life of sorts, that when she's not in the classroom teaching, she is out working, singing as a wildly successful music star who has now been nominated for five Juno. She's up for a Juno this weekend and has been keeping her talents kind of under wraps because she doesn't really brag about it by the sounds of it a whole lot. Well, then you would be a student of Diana Panton. She is a visual arts and drama teacher at Westdale High School, which is right across from where I'm sitting right now. And she is also, as I say, a Juno-winning, Juno-nominated jazz musician. Let me give you a little taste before we bring her in. Here is what Diana Panton sounds like.
2: Moon river, why? Crossing you in style someday, Old Dream Maker, you old heartbreaker. Wherever you're going, I'm going.
1: Let me bring in the person behind that terrific voice. Diana Pant. Diana, thanks for doing this tonight.
2: My pleasure. Hello.
1: The kids knew. The kids in school, they had to know that you were up to something like musical in the evening, didn't they?
2: I work with grade nines, and I always find there's like an incubation period. <laughs> so, I mean, usually before the end of the semester, at some point they figure it out. And of course, with the Junos, and sure, um, they ha- last week the Canadian press came into my classrooms, which was that was a big clue. <laughs> but um, no, I think that uh, at least. At least for the first few years that I taught, I was able to uh, pull off the Clark Kent pretty well. But uh, as as years go on, it's um, you know, and you have siblings and so on. It's <laughs> it's a little bit more challenging. But I think there's always um, there are always still students who are who are a bit surprised <laughs> when they find out. They what
1: do they know. say? What do they say when they do find out?
2: Usually, I would have one student who, who sort of like test the waters and come up. Um, and just sort of ask, uh, Miss, you know, <laughs> do you are you do you sing? <laughs> and they'll usually ask that, and then I'll you know I'll I'll confirm this, and then they'll run back and they'll say, "I told you, <laughs> you know." And then they'll all look it up, and then then you know after that they just they look at you differently because you know it's like this other other thing about you that you know teachers are you know I don't know what we do exactly out of school, but we don't do that right like. we... <laughs> I think sometimes... You know, it's it's the mindset is that a teacher only exists within the school. In of fact, course, maybe we don't have a life at all. It's <laughs> it's
1: building. like it's after school like you're like there. after school you're like the baseball players in Field of Dreams. You walk into the corn and you just sort of vanish until yeah, exactly. the morning. <laughs> but but you don't just sing because again you're up for Juno Awards this weekend. You've been nominated before. You've won before. You were t- last year. You topped the Billboard charts for jazz and kids recording for uh, I believe in little things. That's that's more than just a little hobby on the side. That's that's huge.
2: That was a pretty cool thing. I have to say it surprised me. Um, you know, because I got a call at home asking me, you know, I, you know who I was basically because I sort of came out of nowhere on that chart, but um yeah, that was a that was a really for me like as a musician that was a pretty cool a pretty cool thing to happen, but I didn't, you know, there's nothing I could do to make that happen. It just happened. You know, I've been working on at this for a little while now. And
1: well, tell me about that. How does someone from Hamilton end up in, first of all, before you even get successful, how do you end up in jazz? Because you're a young woman as opposed to, you know, pop or rock or something else. How do you find your way into jazz?
2: I think there was a couple fateful little threads that brought me there, um, One thing was um, there was a community group called the Hamilton All-Star Jazz Band that came to my middle school, which was Ryerson, and they played. And I just remember having a little mental note saying, you know, I think I maybe could do that. And it was odd because I didn't think anything more of it until I was almost near the end of high school. And then um, my dad liked listening to classical music a lot in the house and was very particular about us touching the stereo like that was not our it was not our object (laughs) to play with you know at any age and so i grew up listening to you know classical music in the house and there was just one night where he put on a record and uh, it really caught my ear And to the point where I asked him what it was, and I don't think up until that point I had ever asked him what music he was playing. And he said, oh, you like that? I said, yeah, I really like that. And he said, oh, well, I've got more, you know, and it was an Ella Fitzgerald record. Why he played it on that night, I have no idea, because until that time, I hadn't heard it. And I was probably about 17 or 18. And he said, oh, I've got more. And he sort of slid this door across. Oh, that's another call coming. <laughs> um, he slid a door, and 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 out come all these jazz records that I didn't even know he had. And um, and then him, t- what should I do with that other call? Should uh, I let let it go? The- let we'll- it go? Okay. Yeah. And um, so yeah, so he he had this other life that I didn't know about. Speaking about like a secret life, but I didn't know that he had been a really big jazz, uh, you know, aficionado when he was younger and had gone to see people like J.J. Johnson and Alan Fitzgerald. And um, so it was sort of like we rediscovered his past and me discovering jazz for the first time um, by listening to these records that he had. And um, when I kind of outgrew that collection, just in that I had listened to it a lot, I started going to the Hamilton Public Library and, taking out the maximum number of tapes and CDs that I could every week from the Westdale branch. And when that wasn't enough for me, I would start taking them out from downtown branch as well. So I was listening in probably to about 30 to 50 recordings a week.
1: Singing with them? Like, were you always a singer or were you just listening?
2: I wasn't. um, I wasn't really thinking of it as a singing endeavor. It was just listening. I really liked listening to it. And I mean, I... I just, I don't know, I just li- i liked the music. I would make mixtapes and listen to them, and, um, you know, at, at the time, it didn't strike me as odd. When I look back on it... I think, where did I find the time to do that? And when I look at the technology, you know, in terms of iTunes and YouTube that's available now, I just think, oh, my God, it wouldn't have come up for it. Sure. Now. But, um,
1: but did, so how do you then, because somewhere along the way, at some point you open your mouth and the noise comes out and you discover that you're actually pretty good at this. How does that happen?
2: Well, the singing part of it for me was really separate from the listening part. And, I mean, I, I, I started w- walking to and from school at a fairly young age I was about six and for whatever reason I would always sing out loud. Always. And I would just make up my own songs which were largely inspired by nature. And I mean sometimes they were pretty emotional and sad, you know. I used to remember singing about how there was concrete everywhere and there was nowhere for the you know, the animals to go and <laughs> for some reason at six this I was attuned to this and these sort of things Came through my, you know, my mind, and I would just sing about them impromptu, like walking home. Nobody was listening, of course. And there were times when I would get home, when I'd even be like teared up, sort of thing. My mom said, "What's wrong?" And I said, "I was just singing." <laughs> and you know, that was. She never asked me more. I just, you know, I, I, I just, I would go to a different place. You know what I mean?
1: You felt it though. You obviously felt it. I did, I did it.
2: feel it. And for me, music was, uh, is, was a quiet thing that I did. I did it when I was by myself. Um, it made me, even though I might cry, it made me feel good and um i but i never thought of doing it in a performance um in a performance way so it wasn't until i heard as i said this community group and then sort of discovered the jazz music that i said well you know maybe i could and actually at the time it was a uh, it was a, it's a whole other little weird fateful part to this story but i was playing violin and we went to a school trip to Boston, and I was singing in a back hallway where I didn't think anybody was listening because I had never performed in front of people. And someone came through and said, was that you singing? And of course, I was really embarrassed. And I said, yeah, it was me. And she said, well, you know, do you take singing lessons or anything? I said, no. And she said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Hamilton. And she goes, well, I know someone who teaches singing in Hamilton. And that kind of led me coming back hmm. here to sort of look and pursue singing lessons and that teacher was a classical teacher and she said i think you know you'd be really good for jazz and why don't you try out for this community group which of course i already was aware of and i thought well but she kind of facilitated it by i had already missed the audition and she phoned and she said i think you have to listen to this girl and uh so make well, even- a long story short that got me into the hamilton all-star jazz band and i stayed with them for quite a number of years performing with like a 25 piece big band so
1: wow but even after you've been in there do you then go or do you or an agent or someone go and try and beat down a door to get a recording contract or did someone again hear you and say you got a record for us
2: well i didn't beat down any doors cuz i again it wasn't on my it wasn't on my list of things to do to become a singer even when i was singing in that band i I just—it was sort of a hobby for me that I enjoyed, and we opened um, a show for a professional group that was in from Toronto at the Theatre Aquarius. Um, and uh, after the show, the bass player came up to me and said, "You know, have you ever thought about going to the Banff Center for the Arts?" And I said, "I'd not heard of it." And he said, "Well, you should—you know—throw a throw an edition tape in the mail and and you know try out." So th- I did do that, and I think it was about 19 at that point, and uh, I got accepted to go, and I had no idea what it was going to be. And when I got there, this bass player, piano player, who had recommended that I go was an instructor there. And it turns out, his name is Don Thompson, and he's got the Order of Canada. He's one of jazz's finest contributions in Canada. And um, he was there and we had an opportunity to perform together there. And at the end of our little performance, he told me, when you're ready to record, you can give me a call. And I was so blown away by the invitation that I didn't, I don't think I really took him seriously. Um, Although it did stay in the back of my mind. And 10 years later, believe it or not, I phoned him up. And said, "I think I'm ready to record." Huh. And he remembered who I was, and and that's and all the albums that we've recorded since um, featured Don Thompson. So he was a big mentor to me, and you know, it's it's hard to say if he hadn't come along and sort of taken me to the next phase, you know, of doing it as a solo artist outside of that big band, I'm maybe I wouldn't be singing today.
1: A lot I listened, by the way, a lot to a lot of your songs today. And in fact, as I was listening at home in the office, my daughter, who's twenty two, walked by and she goes, Who's that? There that's great. All so right. so it's it really is. It's not just me. But one of the things that I mean obviously you do covers. We played some of Moon River as you yep. come in. When you do that, as someone who's not necessarily as well known as Diana Krall or someone, mm-hmm. to, do cover songs open the doors for you to be able to then do other stuff that's less well known or that's your own thing? Does that sort of allow people to listen to you and give them the, hey, who's that? And then you can hit them with the other stuff.
2: Um, I'm not, like, for me, it's not like a, it's not like a stepwise thing. Like I'm not trying to lure them in and then conk them over the head with my originals <laughs> because jazz especially is, is part of it is the art of interpretation so it's within our genre style it's very common to take um, what I guess in the more modern musical sense would be considered a cover mm. um, but having said that yes I think especially with the advent of the computer again and things like YouTube that you know, if I do a song that's really popular you know you might throw in there Fly Me to the Moon for example um, and, you know, Frank Sinatra's might come up and um, I don't know, you know, there, you know, there'll be a series of choices along the side and maybe mine will be there and you'd say, oh, well, I'll just click on this and see what this one is. Um, and I think, you know, when I look at something like Fly Me to the Moon, which on YouTube now has close to a million views, I mean, I don't have a million listeners, you know what I mean? Um, So I think that through that network, which is the weird and wonderful thing that's the Internet, um, people find things, you know. I was invited to play in Vladivostok in Russia, and I I book all my own shows, so I know, you know, who I'm approaching about doing gigs, and I didn't approach anyone in Russia. So I was quite surprised to get that invitation. Mm. And When I got there, I just asked them how they you know, how they came to ask me to come. And they said, well, we just went on the, on the internet and we put in jazz vocalists. And they said for, you know, two days, they listened to singers from all over the world and they liked mine the best. So that's why the email didn't ask me if I would come.
1: Well, there was a great piece, as I say, today, uh, well, I don't know if it was just today, but uh, David Friend, who writes for Canadian Press, uh, had a great mm-hmm. piece in The Globe and a bunch of other places. It was on the spec.com It was all over the place. What was the reaction today? Like, you said that a lot of students over time will find out, but suddenly was it a little goofy today that everybody well, suddenly think, knew? I
2: don't think, see, within the bubble of the school, <laughs> I don't think that they knew that that was in the paper today. By tomorrow they will. So, um, but today, you know, life was—I didn't even know it was in the paper until I went for my lunch break, and I had like seven interview requests. So, I—I I wasn't even aware that it was kind of going to be in the be out today. So,
1: when the kids do find out, though, do they ask for a demonstration ever? Do they ever say, "Hey, sing us something"? Um prove, they it, don't prove ask it so
2: much but they do they do ask but if, that's something that i just don't do <laughs> i just don't do that so um but they do look on they'll look on youtube and and listen and on itunes and things like that yeah
1: because i was going to ask as we let you go i was going to ask are you comfortable you are certainly comfortable on stage now singing mm-hmm. jazz are you would you be comfortable standing in front of a bunch of high school students and singing some of your stuff or does that kind of go? oh i don't know if i'm sure um,
2: I think for me, that is, it's a little bit more challenging, <laughs> um, you know, because it's a outside of the genre style that they might be used to. Um, but, you know, to me, it's, it's not a novelty, you know what I mean? It's like my passion. Of course. You know? So, I think if they're really interested, like, they will, they'll seek it out, you know, but I, to me, it's not, it's not like a, it's not like a something I, I don't know how to describe it. It's not like a party favor, you know what I mean? So... Yeah, to me, but I, you
1: know, the one thing about it though, and this is the, this is one of the things that's great about this is when I asked you off the top, how does someone from Hamilton get into jazz as opposed to these other styles? Mm-hmm. Most of the kids in high school, I'm guessing are not listening to jazz, but I bet you that after they find out about you, some they them, will sample it.
2: Yeah, some of them do, you know, and I have, I have people who come up and talk to me in the halls, not always people that I teach. Who's, you know, who say they listen to my music or that they, you know, that they're really into jazz and ask me questions. Um and those the, those kinds of things like I'm, it's always a pleasure for me, you know what I mean, if someone has that interest and I'm there, I'm in the building, you know what I mean, and they and they want to approach me about that, then that's great, you know.
1: It is, uh, it is fantastic. I would urge people to go. It's on the line. It's online at spec.com It's at The Globe. Um, Diana, really appreciate you doing this. We're going to send people out. You talked about Fly Me to the Moon. We're going to send people out with a little taste of, uh, of Fly Me to the Moon. Diana Panton, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9
2: on AM 900 CHML.
1: Friday, a couple days from now, is the opening of the Women's World Hockey Championship. Now, The Men's World Hockey Championship, a lot of us, because the Stanley Cup playoffs are on at that time, a lot of us kind of poo-poo them. They're usually over in Europe, and we don't really pay all that much attention to them. The Women's World Championship, on the other hand, for women's hockey, other than the Olympics, this is the big moment of the year. This is the championship that women who are playing the game, who make a national team, this is what they want to win. This is the top of the mountain. And joining the national team, making her debut in these championships, is a second- Local woman. Of course, you know that Laura Fortino has been on the team for a number of years now. She set up the gold medal winning overtime golden goal in Sochi. But joining her now from Burlington, Renata Fast, who will be, as I say, making her debut on the team Friday night. She joins me now. Renata, thanks for doing this tonight.
3: Nice, Scott. Thanks for having me.
1: This... uh, I've not ever played on a world championship team for Canada. This has got to be a little bit exciting.
3: Yeah, this is uh, you know so exciting and so unbelievable. Um, I really just can't wait to, can't wait to uh, start the tournament.
1: For those who don't know you, and people will get to know you, when you play on the national team, people do get to know you. But for those who don't, you've had already a lot of big moments in hockey. You played at Clarkson. You've played in the NCAA tournament. Uh, mm-hmm. If I'm correct... It, and if it still stands, you have actually scored the fastest goal in NCAA U.S. College Women's Hockey Tournament history, correct? Ten seconds into a game?
3: <laughs> yes, I have. Does that still stand? I believe so.
1: So your last name is appropriate. I mean, if your last name was Renata Slow, <laughs> would be rather ironic. But anyway, um, you have played on Canada's national developmental team. So you've, you've worn the, the Maple Leaf before. Yes. You have won medals in international competition. Um, You were the second overall draft pick in the Canadian Women's Hockey League by the Toronto Furies, correct? Yes, I was. By the way, i got to ask you, because someone asked me this today. How often does someone actually mispronounce that name and say it's the Furries? Any Ever?
3: Yeah, pretty often. Or the
1: flurries. <laughs> the flurries. Yeah, that's actually, that's a better mispronunciation. i got to be honest with you. All right. Um, but this, this, as you say, this has got to be a next level kind of thing to actually find out that you're going to be playing for the senior national team, the top, really the top team in women's hockey in the world.
3: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's a huge honor and it's been a dream of mine since I was young to play for a senior um, national team. Um, and anytime you get to wear the maple leaf, it's definitely an exciting time, but I think it's, uh, this time is extremely special just because it's at a new level and playing at a world championship is, um, you know, next to the Olympics. So, um, I'm really, really looking forward to it.
1: At the beginning when I was introducing this, I said that for a, at the beginning of last hour, that for young boys, they dream of going to the NHL. That's their top of the mountain. Is it a fair thing to say that for a women's hockey player, for a woman's hockey player, making can if you're a Canadian, making the senior national team, that is reaching the top of the mountain?
3: Oh, definitely. Um, 100%. Yeah, uh, young boys, they dream of playing in the NHL. Um, and, you know, for, on the female side of the game, we're, we're starting to get there with the growth of the Canadian Women's Hockey League. But uh, no doubt the top of the mountain would be um, definitely representing your country um, for us female athletes. Um, So I definitely think it's something that young female hockey players um,
1: would do. Do you remember when it first crossed your mind that you would love to do this someday, whether you thought it was realistic or not? Do you remember how old you were when you thought, I would really like to play on that team?
3: Um, Yeah, I think I was in... Like, grade two, it was the um, <laughs> Salt Lake City Olympics. Um, uh, both the female and the, and the males they both fell on gold. And I remember, I was I was very young, but I still remember in my, my mind, um, thinking how amazing it was and how cool it was uh, that these players, you know, they, they were playing for their country, they were at the Olympics. And um, from that day forward, you know, I wasn't really set on hockey being the sport that I wanted to reach my goals at. But, um, I knew that, that one day I wanted to, to wear that maple leaf, um, with pride.
1: But that's all, I mean, that's been a long wait. You're 20, you're 22 now, right? Yes. So yeah, I mean, you're talking about 15 years, give or take that you've had that in the back of your mind.
3: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. It's been since I was very young.
1: So tell me how you found out then, how did you actually learn that you had made this team and you were going to be reaching that goal?
3: um so it's been a long process and um within this year um we've had some camps and some uh, other tournaments but um there was a player pool and they had announced they were going to have a conference call with each individual player to notify us about the upcoming world championships so it was a couple weeks back or a month or so back that we got phone calls and definitely one of the most nerve-wracking moments in my life, waiting for that phone call to hear if I would be representing Canada at these upcoming world championships. Um, so yeah, a lot of uh, anticipation and nerves coming up to that moment, but it was uh, the most surreal feeling when I finally heard the news.
1: So e- everybody who had been at the camp was going to get a call, whether you made it or not. They were going to have a conference call to tell you if you made it or didn't make it. Yes, S- Okay, so you, you knew the call was coming. Did you know when the call was arriving? Did you know what day, or was it just sort of in this time frame?
3: Yeah, it was actually um, there was actually a, a pretty strict schedule. Um, you were notified what time to phone into the conference calling line. Um, once you called in at that time, you were put on hold until the coaches were ready for you to enter the conference call. Um, so, yeah, I think about two weeks in advance of the phone calls, we were given our dates and times. So it was, um, you know, we we knew it was coming, and there was a lot of anticipation um, waiting for that phone call.
1: Anticipation or just outright stress.
3: <laughs> a mixture, yeah, it was a pretty stressful time,
1: but I mean when you're when you're on hold then waiting for them to pick up the conference call honestly you're you're pretty calm I mean in on the ice, you're pretty calm, but when you're sitting there holding the phone, waiting, are you shaking, are you sweating or your is your mouth dry like what are you thinking in that moment <laughs> I, when it's this silence?
3: I think it's a combination of all three um yeah, I was my whole body was completely shaking um I was sweating i my mouth was going dry and i remember like i don't even really remember once they told me that i had um made made the team i i can't really tell you what else happened in the conversation because i was just so ecstatic and um i remember going downstairs telling some of my family and i i was shaking for the next hour after that just um you know just so so happy and um you know, a dream come true.
1: Did, did they did they drag it along? Did they make you suffer? Was it like the American Idol thing when Ryan Seacrest <laughs> says, "And the winner is," and then he pauses for ten seconds, or did they did they let you off the hook pretty quickly?
3: <laughs> you know, um, me and some of the other girls, we had been talking before, and we were we were saying, "Oh, are they going to small talk with us right before, <laughs> or are they just going to cut right to the chase?" And thankfully, you know, they they. They um, let you know as soon as they got on the phone call. Um, I think they knew it was a stressful time for all of us, so uh, they were pretty quick to tell us the news. That way, um, you know, we could relax a little bit, I guess.
1: Do you even remember who it was who said the words?
3: (laughs) Yes, I do. Um, It was uh, the head coach of the team.
1: So, And you say you were at home then, obviously, because you went downstairs to talk to your family. Yep. Was your family, because knowing how big a deal this was, was your family and maybe you don't even know the answer to this were they prepared to be psychologists if you had come downstairs and said I didn't make it?
3: Um, yeah, I think so I think um, they knew I was um, pretty pretty um, stressed leading up to the phone call and um, you know i was I was nervous and um, I think that you know they support me one hundred percent and whether I had been selected or not been selected, they would have been um, there for me. And uh, But it's a completely
1: know. different attitude they have to take depending on whether you come down yeah. smiling or crying. Or <laughs> were you crying regardless? Maybe you were crying either way. I don't know. <laughs>
3: I'm, I may have shed a few
1: tears. <laughs> <laughs> it is, um, you have been, as I said, uh, you've been involved in elite-level women's hockey for long enough now that I'm. I'm wondering if... When you then walk into Team Canada's dressing room, that it's completely just okay. You know that's cool. I'm here now. Or do you are you still new enough at this that you walk in and look around and go, "Holy cow!" That that's Laura Fortino and that's Marie Philippe Poulain, and That's all the rest. Mm-hmm. Like, is is it a bit eye opening when you walk in the first time as a member of that team, equal with them?
3: Um, I think so for sure. I don't. I don't think it ever gets old. Um, you know, I have been to quite a few camps with these girls and um, some tournaments and um obviously it's a huge honor to to be their teammates and you definitely look up to them there's definitely some role models to us um and i wouldn't say that you know you look at it you walk in and you're used to it i think every time that you're going to play for your country regardless if it's your first time or if it's your your 10th time um i think it's a you take it with a lot of pride and a lot of honor so um i think just you know i'm just obviously so humbled, and I'm really excited to play alongside so many so many amazing um, athletes.
1: But these are these are women who, especially, I mean, for boys too. I'm not going to suggest otherwise, but especially for young girls growing up playing hockey, these are enormous celebrities. I mean, what what Poulin did at the Sochi Olympics, what Laura Fortino, as we mentioned before, mm-hmm. did. These are these are women that when they walk into a hockey arena, I've talked to Laura about this. When they walk into an arena now, and there's a girls' game or a practice going on. People stop. They're they're huge celebrities.
3: Yes, definitely.
1: And you're one yeah. of them now. <laughs>
3: um, I guess that uh, I guess you know uh, for the young kids, yeah, you do see that, and and we're role model, role models for them, and and we love that we can be those figures figure for them. But um, once we get each other in a group together, you know, uh, we're all on the same same page with things, and. Um, you know, we work hard together and we have fun together and, um, we don't really see anyone too superior to others. It's uh yeah, we all have role models and we look up to each other, but, um, yeah, you know, it's just great to be surrounded by such great people.
1: When I looked at the roster today to see, uh, just to double check and see if there was anyone else in there I should take note of, I almost mm-hmm. didn't see you because you're the very last one. It's numeric. Yeah. You're wearing 36. Why 36? <laughs>
3: Well, um, being a rookie, you just uh, are given a number um, for when you first come into the senior level of the program. So uh, 36 is the chosen number for me, and um, I'm starting to like it a little bit.
1: So, I mean, that's very cool because you can make it your own, but you don't get, once you make the team, they don't actually say to you, hey, do you want 36 or would you like something else?
3: Um, Nope. Uh, There's a certain rule with uh, girls who previously wore numbers they have to be retired for a certain amount of years before um, you can take their number so I think just as a young player they give you a number and a lot of the time the girls take those numbers and you know they built their career off of that number so they just continue to wear it Um, whereas you do have a chance to change it if another number is available and you've uh, you know you've made the team for a couple years in a row.
1: So the tournament starts Friday, and what's really interesting about this is that we've heard a lot in recent days about the u s women and the um, protests that they were staging first of all right off the bat you guys play them you play them on Friday night they don't wait you just you're you're thrown in right with the Americans right off the bat is that a good thing or is that a bad thing
3: oh that's an awesome thing I think that's an awesome way to start.
1: even for a rookie yeah um,
3: I think the rivalry between Canada and the u s is like no other and um, I think we both have so much fun playing each other and it's a great game, um, I think, to kick off the tournament all together and, you know, to really, to really um, get, us, get our feet under us and get going with things right off the bat.
1: Going back though to this thing, when you, you, I'm, you have to have been following what's been going on. I, I mean, I can't believe that you've been ignoring what has been going on with this protest and whether or not they, the Americans were actually going to be playing in this tournament. What, were you happy... When they when you found out that they were going to be there and they'd reached a settlement or honestly, or were you saying, you know what I wouldn't have minded in my first world championship if they weren't there because that would have probably meant a gold medal for sure for us, and then we'll worry about getting them back in later after I've got a gold medal
3: um, <laughs> No, I don't think that was the case at all for me um you know I, I did follow it a little bit, but I was really focused on what Canada needed to do regardless of if the u s was um, coming to the tournament or not but um, I think when we found out as a group that the U.S. was coming to the World Championships, we were all really excited because that's what we play for. Those are the games that we get most excited for. Um, you know, and, and when you go to a World Championships, you want, you want, the, best, uh, you want the best there. And they're obviously huge competitors of us, and so that's a huge rivalry. And I think for women's hockey, it's important that uh, you know, both Canada and the U.S. are um, having these intense uh, games.
1: You must have, because you played U.S. college hockey, you must have played against a number of the women who were on the U.S. team. Did you Have you played with any of them?
3: Um, I haven't played with any of them, although the captain of Team USA, uh, Megan Duggan, was my coach for two years at Clarkson University. <laughs> so that's the biggest connection I have to any of their players. So that's kind of a unique situation.
1: Yeah, but no I kidding. I
3: played against um, a lot of them as well.
1: So we just have a couple minutes left here, but... Ha- have you thought or how often have you actually thought about that first game? Cause you say you've been since grade two, you've been thinking about this in recent weeks, in recent days, do you lie in bed thinking about getting on the ice and having that first experience? Or is it just another game, honestly, for you?
3: Um, I think I'd say it's a mix. It's a mix. I haven't been, um, you know, thinking of too much because I'm just taking things one day at a time, uh, preparing myself leading up to the tournament. But, when i really do sit there and i think about the tournament uh canada versus u.s is the games i think about um the other games are important and the other countries are very strong as well but there's nothing like that rivalry and it's you know it's uh super exciting to play against them but um for now you know i'm just working uh looking at one day at a time and when game day comes against the u.s uh, i'll be ready and uh be really excited
1: is the family coming they are yes cuz it's a, this is fantastic for you because the tournament this year is in Plymouth Michigan so it's only it's not a very far drive so they can actually get there it's not in Europe or somewhere so that's that works out mm-hmm. perfectly
3: yeah i was i was really the tournament was uh, not too far from home so it gives the chance for some family and friends to come down and and watch
1: Okay, last thing is, I let you go, because this this is something that I definitely would have done, but maybe it's just because I'm, you know, a little different. When you were given your Team Canada sweater with 36 on the back and fast written across the back, when you got that, honestly, did you stand in front of the mirror for a couple seconds at least and see how it looked?
3: <laughs> uh, I think you have to do that a little subtly with the other <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, it's...
1: it's Everybody's yeah. done that, right? Everyone yeah. the first time.
3: I think so. I think... Um, putting that maple leaf on whether it's a practice jersey or it's a game jersey i think you put it on with pride in your and you just you know you're, you're so happy to be wearing that jersey and representing your country so um i think it's something that yeah you definitely feel great when you get that opportunity
1: by the way who are you paired with on defense do you have a particular partner or are you moving around a bit
3: uh, we move around quite a bit uh, with the national team
1: Renata Fast, she will be making her debut with the senior national team at the World Championships when they open against the U.S. on Friday. Uh, Renata, listen, great luck. Uh, Appreciate you taking the time to do this, and uh, can't wait to be talking about this many, many, many more times down the road as you play for this team. Appreciate the time.
3: Thank you so much, Scott.
1: That is, uh, again, Renata Fast from Burlington. We now have two. We now have Laura Fortino and Renata. I am looking forward to when they are both on the ice together as a defensive pairing. Let's just make it an all Hamilton-Burlington national team if we can. Let's just keep pumping out more and more great female players because we do. We actually do produce a lot of very, very good female hockey players in this area. We really do. If you look around on NCAA, U.S. college rosters, traditionally, typically we have produced from this area an awful lot of good female hockey players, and now we are starting to see them worked their way up and break into the national team program again with Laura and now with Renata so good for them keep up with them keep an eye on them what they're doing this week for the next number of days anyway at the World Championships
0: The Scott Radley Show weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 AM 900
3: CHML